This message first aired on the radio on December 2nd, 2003. Well, we're in the book of Romans, and we're going right through it consecutively. And the book of Romans is the beginning of a series of nine epistles that we're going to go through to seven churches or groups of churches. And we believe that the Word of God is laid out in inspired form. I haven't really spoken about that much. If you uh, follow this broadcast, if you've paid attention to what we've been doing the last half year, then you realize that BibleStudy.net here, which is a ministry of our local church, we do believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, and we hold to that. We also believe that the Scripture is inspired in the order. One of the things that we discover in looking at the Bible in the text is that there's a near unanimity at the order of the books of what is commonly referred to as the New Testament. We covered this a little bit yesterday, talked about how it is that the Gospels distill through the book of Acts and the church, which is his body, the great mystery that we enjoy today, one of the great mysteries we enjoy today, is formulated as doctrine progresses from seed truths in the Gospels uh, through practices that we observe and development that we see in the book of Acts, and then the doctrine continues to progress through especially these nine epistles. The book of Romans is a particularly doctrinally oriented epistle. It's a doctrinal treatise. And when we look through the book of Romans, we see that we're challenged with the doctrinal underpinnings of the faith. And we understand that the faith principle is established and not a law principle established. And now, as we come to to Romans chapter 6, we begin to see what it really means to be a believer in Jesus Christ and how it is that his vicarious death works in our behalf, what it truly and deeply means personally that Christ died for our sins. And we also begin to see emerging here in the sixth chapter and developed extensively in the seventh and eighth chapters. But we begin to see this uh, truth emerging so important to us that indeed we have a new nature when we're born from above. And of course, because we understand that the difference between sins and sin, that we understand that the Bible teaches sin to be the very nature of sin that we're born into because we're born in Adam, that we have a very nature of sin, and that our sins are mere indicators of that nature, then we also realize why it is that only death by someone else for our sins is the only way that salvation can come. In fact, we realize that we need the gift of God, that is, the grace of God. We need the gift of God works apart in order to be saved. Indeed, that is the way that, that God has done it, the substitutionary, vicarious work of Jesus Christ in our behalf. So yesterday we looked at some of these grand truths. We understood, for example, verse 5 of Romans 6, if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we'll also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And we realize that we are dead with him, planted together as he was planted into the earth. He said, except a corn of wheat die, it abides alone. Uh, but if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. And, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ did not want to be alone. We find in the Scripture the first not good referenced in Scripture was referenced according to Adam. We understand from the book of Romans that Adam is a type of our federal head in Christ. And God said when he made Adam, it is not good that man should live alone. 
And, of course, it's not good that our Lord Jesus Christ would be alone. He said, except a corn of wheat die, referring to himself as the corn of wheat, or the kernel, or the seed, the germ, except that it's planted into the ground, it just stays by itself. But if it's planted into the ground, it brings forth much fruit. That is a picture of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was intended to bring forth more for himself. It tells us in the prophecies of Isaiah that when the Lord Jesus Christ looked at the trials before him, he saw seed. That is to say, he saw of the travail of his soul, and he was satisfied. He saw the fruit that he would bring forth. And it is the desire and plan of God that the Lord Jesus Christ would not be alone, but he'd be the firstborn from the dead among many brethren. And that is the purpose of the federal headship of our Lord Jesus Christ, part of what we're seeing here as emerging truth in the book of Romans. So this one wonderful thought, if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we'll also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing that our old man is crucified with him or co-crucified. So we see co-planting, we see the co-crucifixion, and we will see the co-living together with him. Then we had introduced to us in our studies the old man, which is to say the old nature. And here in the book of Romans, we're going to see about the old man, and we're going to see about the inward man. And we're going to see that the apostle refers to two men inside of himself, not in succession, not as if there's one man and then he's effaced, and then another man comes along, but he's going to demonstrate uh, the conflict that any Christian knows of having two natures in himself in conflict. And indeed, that's what we have. Now, so, co-planted in the likeness of his death, that is to say, his death becomes our death. Whoever believes in him is passed through death into life because his death becomes our death. It's appointed for men to die once and then face judgment. We died once when Christ died. We faced judgment. It was the judgment upon him for our sins. And now we enter into newness of life. Our old man was co-crucified, that the body of sin might be destroyed. And, of course, there is a body of sin. Now, this is not talking about our members. This is not talking about our flesh and bones and blood. The body of sin is that corporate humanity that was sold under sin. There's a body of sin, and we're going to find out there's also a body of Christ. And the body of sin dies and emerges out of Adam and in Christ as the body of Christ. And this is a wonderful truth that is missed and overlooked. And this body, the church which is his body, this is a mystery that was never before told, and we're going to see about that at the end of the book. But I can skip ahead because I've already read the book of Ephesians, and I know that this is a mystery that was hidden. This is not the gospel. This is now the mystery of the church which is his body, the gospel always known, never hidden, this now hidden, it's a secret that's revealed in the scriptures that God gave to us after the resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's important for us first to clear the work that he's done for us, and then we can see the destiny that he's planned for us more clearly and without doubt and without wavering. And that's God's purpose for us, and that's why the epistles are written, and that's why they're written in the order in which they're written. So we move along now, and we want to focus now toward these verses 9, 10, 11, 
12 of Romans 6, and I'll just read them. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dies no more, death has no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he lives, he lives unto God. And of course, the idea there is he lives unto God for all time or continuously. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Christ Jesus our Lord. That is our identification with him. That was verse 11, verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. First part of 13. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. So we clear the doctrinal section, and then in verses 12 and 13 and 14, we're going to see the implications of that doctrinal section on our behavior. But we can't really understand behavior until we understand the nature of things. And that's one of the meditations that God would give to us. He would tell us to slow down as Christians and understand the nature of things, including ourselves, before we get all busy trying to do things, even if we think we're doing things for him. God wants us to understand our own nature. And until you understand God, you don't really understand yourself, and you don't understand the nature of man. I marvel at the graciousness God has shown our nation. And as I look at uh, the history of America, the great blessings that God has visited upon, for example, our country, and you wonder how that is that we're so blessed by God. And one of the reasons for that is because at our inception, from our beginning of a, as a nation, we at least rightly understood the nature of man. Now, I studied the dismal science in university. That's economics for those of you that have never been just bored stupid for years. It's called the dismal science because it is. But I still found in studying that uh, dismal thing enough interesting stuff to at least get through it finally. And in there, the underpinnings that made it correct was a proper assessment of man. Now, I don't want you to go off into philosophies because the Scripture has this right here in Romans 6. And if I could have just studied Romans 5, 6, and 7 in college and correctly understood it, I could have not wasted all manner of time reading analytic philosophy and other dismal stuff. But one thing that was correct, at least in, our, in the old economic theory, I don't know what the new economic theory is. I hear about this new economy, but I don't understand the theory because like, it doesn't work. But the old theory was that men were wicked and rapacious, and they needed to be held in check, and that other wicked men would see to it in environment of a fair competition, other wicked men would see to it that their peers, who are also wicked, would not get an advantage over them. That was the Hobbesian view of man, that man is essentially wicked and he needs to be restrained, but that he will participate, economically speaking, in the restraint of his peer uh, as long as he has proper information and liberty to do that. And that was the only assurance that came to be known as perfect competition, an assumption of economic theory, that was almost always there. Well, it was at least there in the elementary stages. And then we could begin to observe behavior when there was no competition, and that was predictable based on the rapacious, wicked nature of man. 
And let me assure you, if you understand sin and you understand the nature of sin, that men are sinners and that they will do wickedly despite their best intentions, then you have been educated in a very great way. Well, where does this education come from? This education comes from the simple study of these chapters of the Bible, which we're trying to expound today, here in the book of Romans. You'll be wiser than all your teachers if you pay attention to the Word of God, just like David was. So we see this nature of sin. And how do we see that man has a nature of sin? We see it by the sins that that engine produces. We can find out about the engine by the works that it throws off. We see lots and lots of sins. We begin to understand there's a source of these sins, and the Bible calls that sin, or we might call it the sin nature. And then we find this. Our, if our old man is crucified, that is our old man being that sin nature, that the body of sin might be destroyed. If he's crucified, then he's dead. And uh, he that is dead, one thing he is free from, besides taxes, he's free from sin. The nature of sin no longer can move that man to do the deeds or the sins. We'll come back to this. We're not going to just leave it alone. We're going to keep throwing mud at the fence until some sticks. We'll come back right after this announcement. Stay with us. Know this, your old man, that man who sins, that man who has the nature of sin, that old man was co-crucified with him. And that as he hung on the cross, that old man hung there with him. Therefore, it tells us now, now, verse 8, if we be dead with Christ, we believe we shall live with him. Verse 10, for in that he died, he died unto sin. That is, he died unto that sin nature once, but he lives unto God. He lives unto God. The just for the unjust. Not that he had a sin nature. No, that he died to free us from it. He's the strong man who came and who bound, who bound the robber and captured everything that that robber had. Therefore, verse 11, likewise, now therefore, reckon. Here we have the word reckon. Not just a Western word, I reckon. Reckon means I account for. I account for. It's not a careless thought, but it is a thought. It is an effort of faith, I might say. Not an energy of faith. It's not a work. It is a part of faith. It is the aspect of mind whereby we account for things. It is the aspect of mind where we judge it. We can say, I judge. We could translate this to say, likewise, judge yourselves to be dead. Reckon yourself. Now, this is the same reckon that we found elsewhere in Scripture in the fourth chapter. The same word reckon. This is the same reckon that God does when he reckons faith in place of righteousness or puts it to the account. This is what Abraham did when he was not weak in faith. He didn't think about his own body now dead but he reckoned God's promise to be true. He accounted it to be true. And so his faith, where he accounted God to be true, when he did that, his faith, his doing of that, was reckoned to him in place of righteousness. So reckon yourselves dead unto sin, but alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, that, now what is that reckoning? Ah, that reckoning is the consideration that Christ's death is my death. It's not a complex thing. 
It's not a changing thing. Consider yourself dead to sin, alive to God. Now, if you'll consider that so, if you'll realize that Christ's death for you is a very real thing, that his vicarious death, although substitutionary, is real and is factual, then now you no longer are victimized by your stinking thinking. This is not a psychological ploy. This is the education of fact. If you read the Bible, here it is. And here's the nice thing about this. This is why I can preach in hope. This is why I can teach in hope. Because I know if you've believed in Jesus Christ, you do have a new man who, when he hears this, knows this to be true, that the proper way for you to think about things is to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Because that old nature, the one that sins, the one that just produces that engine of sin that is you, that is the one for whom Christ died. That's right. And he gives you a new mind. He gives you a new nature that has a new mind. It is the mind that has faith in him. It is the mind that reckons, that judges, that considers. The spiritual man judges all things. It is the mind that judges and considers and reckons. And you can reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God in that he died. And his death is your death. Now, when faith properly thinks. In other words, when the man of faith thinks right, and he reckons himself dead unto sin and alive to God, something different happens in that life. Sin no longer reigns over the body. Verse 12, let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body. Now there is sin. We do have sin. That's the problem. We have that old nature. We reckon ourselves dead, but we consider it so on the basis of faith because we still have that old nature in that old body, that is, in the mortal body. Now, our mortal body is not evil. Our evil proceeds out of the heart. And one of the things that the Lord Jesus Christ laid down in germ truth in the Gospel accounts while he taught on earth, which was contested heavily, by the way, by all those around him, was the principle that evil is not out there somewhere trying to get in, but that evil proceeds out of the heart of men. Evil's inside us. People I know have problems with me because I object to certain forms of teaching that have become very popularized in our country and, of course, foisted on children because that's who we like to stumble first, where we teach them to say no to inanimate objects, say no to drugs. Well, there's no sense talking to drugs. In fact, one might say, that's insane. You got some pile of white powder? No sense talking to it. And by the way, let me tell you this. No pile of white powder is evil. I don't care what the white powder is. I don't care if it's sugar, flour, or cocaine. No pile of white powder is evil. The evil is in us. No piece of metal is evil. piece of metal, uh, if you worship it, Somebody has to call it a Nehushtan, a piece of brass, and melt it down so you quit worshiping it. If you're scared of a piece of metal, or somehow you personalize it and call it evil, you're doing the same ignorant thing. So therefore, a gun is not evil. A gun is a, pe it's a piece of metal. It's a Nehushtan. No such thing as evil things. Certain crops, 
are not evil. Certain weeds from which the industrial version of you can make rope, and used to make a lot of rope in the state of Kentucky, for example, out of the hemp plant. There's nothing evil about that plant. There's nothing evil about it in its industrial form. There's nothing evil about it in an otherwise cultivated form. The evil is in us. And let me tell you, the principle that evil resides in the person is the principle which the Lord Jesus Christ taught. Sin does not come in from the outside. Sin proceeds out of the heart. Whether it's Flip Wilson or your school teacher, I don't care who it is. Let me assure you that you have an answer to evil in you, and you are the problem. God knows that. God eliminated the problem insofar as Christ died for you. And when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can consider yourself or account for yourself dead to sin. That was why he died. Now, then we have this wonderful word of Scripture that we ought to pay a lot more attention to. And that is the word let. Romans chapter 6, verse 12. Let. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. And now the issue becomes here, as we start looking at verse 12, really on through verse 16, uh, we begin to look here, who is going to rule, who is going to rule your body while you're alive? Who or what, we might say who or what, is going to reign or is going to rule your mortal body? Now this is a mortal body. Now here we've already been assured that if we've died with Christ, we will also rise with Christ, and so we're going to have an immortal body. At the end of 1 Corinthians, we'll see that this mortal must put on immortality. This corruptible must put on incorruption. That has to do with two kinds of people. In fact, in the context of 1 Corinthians, it has to do with two kinds of believers. And you know, there really are two kinds of believers There are two kinds of believers, and the distinction the Bible makes between them is very clear. We have living believers, and we have sleeping believers, or dead believers. There's the distinction. And this mortal must put on immortality. So those of us who are alive and remain to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, our mortal will put on immortality. Those who have gone on before and are dead, or as to say sleeping, because we know they'll rise. But, I mean, they are dead. Those who have gone on and died have corrupted, gone to soil, as it were, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. There's no comfort in that. I don't know why people think that's a comforting scripture to funeral. The comforting scripture to funeral is the dead in Christ will rise first, and we that are alive and remaining will also be caught up together with them. That is, they'll rise first. They'll be reassembled into their resurrection bodies. They'll get their new bodies, just like this mortel is, passing body. Okay, fine, even if you have great hair, like I do, it's still passing. These mortal bodies will put on immortality. Okay, we've already cleared that, but now we have this let not sin, therefore, if we're dead to it, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Now, it has the Scripture teaches us that these mortal bodies are valuable nonetheless. These mortal bodies are valuable nonetheless. And the contest now, in the, in the, inside the Christian life, and here we're beginning to define the Christian life, the contest is what or who will reign in your mortal body? 
here, here sometimes people get so confused because they say, well, you've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you made him Lord of your life? Well, I'm not going to make him. I don't make him any. He is who he is. He is. He's the son of God. He's Lord of all. He's, he, he's, the, he's the Lord Jesus Christ, after all. I don't make him anything. Uh, he's the one who's made me. How do I make him? Now, do I acknowledge him as Lord of my life? Well, of, well, of course, I acknowledge him of Lord of all. That certainly includes me and my life. I mean, what, make him Lord of my life? I, I've got this problem that everybody else has that's believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Two natures at war. Now, here's the, here's the exhortation. We might say it's an exhortation, but really, it's a knock it off. Here we're not told to do something. Here we're told to knock something off. In, in, in fact, if, uh, if the Bible were written in vernacular, and I don't think it should be, Maybe it can be taught in vernacular. I don't think it should be written in it. But if it were written in vernacular, it would say, so knock off letting sin reign in your mortal body. But notice it's a passive thing. Let not. Notice that? This has to do with what you're allowing. Not so much what you're doing, but what you're allowing. In fact, here's what it really means. Unrestrained, that old nature will reign in your mortal body. Don't let it. Who won't let it? Here we have two natures. We have the old nature that wants to sin, and we have the new nature that doesn't want to sin. In fact, we have an old nature that only sins, and we have a new nature that never sins. So who's he speaking to? Which nature does he speak to when he says, let not sin reign? Well, he's speaking to the new nature. This is an exhortation to the new nature, and it's an obvious statement that the new nature can and does have ascendancy over the old one in the believer, because otherwise, how could we be told to not allow this thing? Let not sin reign in your mortal body. On the other hand, if sin couldn't reign in the body of the believer, why would we be so exhorted to not allow it? And, of course, the answers to these are pretty simple. First of all, this is instruction to the new man. And every child of God has this new man, so this is instruction, which finds a responsive chord in every child of God. And in everyone who's not a child of God, they go, huh, what? I have no idea what you're talking about. But every child of God understands what it means, let not sin, because he has a new man that this now, that is now responsive to this statement. Let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body. And the second thing is this. If a real Christian never would let sin reign in his mortal body, then why would we be told not to? And the fact is this. Real Christians do let sin reign in their mortal bodies, and they don't have to. So, don't let it. In fact, this is not something you go out of your way to do. This is something that you just allow. This has to do with extraordinary passivity. And the Christian is not called to passivity. See, some people think yielding to God, letting brotherly love continue. Some people think that being extraordinarily passive is somehow being Christian. Of course, Christianity, not passive. Christianity, an active thing. Don't just sit by and let sin reign in your mortal body. And, of course, the implication is what? It will if you do. It will. That you should obey it in the lusts thereof. And up come the lusts, and they make their claims, and they make their demands, but you decide to do it. So don't tell me, right, don't tell me that your sins are just little mistakes. 
Don't tell yourself that. Here's what it is. When sins begin to emerge and you recognize them, it's because you allow or let sin, you let sin rise up and get dominance in your mortal body. Then it says, neither yield ye, and this is exactly what you do. Verse 13, this is what we do. You, the me, both, neither yield your members as weapons, literally, weapons of unrighteousness. Now, this thought really caught me up today. I, In fact, I, I thought about this today before I came in the broadcast quite a bit. I thought, well, you know, this is... What this is like, here we have weapons. Our, our mortal bodies are weapons One in a spiritual war. Everything we do for God or against him, we do with our bodies. We pray in our bodies. We read scripture in our bodies. We preach in our bodies. We endure in our bodies. And the Bible word here for instruments, it reads, neither yield ye your members as instruments. The, the real word here, this is weapons. Do not Give up your weapons. I start thinking about policemen. Okay, policemen, not exactly warriors. Okay, but, you know, I start thinking about policemen. I understand policemen are told not to give up their weapons. Now, I'd rather think about a soldier here, because in the spiritual war, we're all recruits. And here it says, don't yield your your weapons. Don't give up your weapons to the enemy. I think that's probably Warfare 101. Don't give up your weapons to your enemy. In fact, a friend of mine sent me rules of warfare. I think I've had two sets of rules of warfare, one that's allegedly a Navy set and one that's allegedly a Marine set. And the only way, uh, according to those rules, the only way that you should be uh, harmed by your own weapon is to be bludgeoned over the head with an empty weapon or it's pried from your cold, dead hands. Now, that's war. Now, let's just carry the analog over, because there is a spiritual war. And uh, this is now going to be talking about some of the elementary principles of it. Don't be handing your weapons to the enemy. What does that mean? Neither yield your members as weapons of unrighteousness unto sin. You say, well, wait a minute, sin. Who's the enemy here? What enemy are you talking about? Well, the Scripture says we have three spiritual enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, the flesh is the one we're talking about here, that old nature. He's a traitor. He's a traitor. Recognize him as such. He's the spy in the camp. He's the traitor in the war. Do not yield your weapons. Do not give your weapons to the traitor. That's that's what Scripture teaches us. Neither yield your members as weapons of unrighteousness unto that old sin nature. Because when it comes to the conflict, not when it comes to our standing in Christ, but when it comes to the actual conflict or the spiritual war, you are the servant of the one you serve. And that's what we come to here in the next portion of Scripture. That's what we come to. We're the servants of the one to whom we yield. So we're looking here at Romans 6, and as we look further, we find out, all right, so I don't surrender my instruments to the enemy. I don't surrender to the traitor, which is the old nature, the flesh. What do I do? And that's a good question because we look midway through the 13th verse of Romans 6, 
And we find, on the other hand, so we have one of these clauses that says, on the one hand, don't yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. On the other hand, or instead of that, do this. Yield yourselves unto God. Now, that's a very interesting thing, because it doesn't just tell us immediately, the Scripture doesn't tell us immediately to rather yield your members as weapons of righteousness, but first it says, yield yourselves unto God. Now, this yield here is an interesting word. It is the word present. I I like the word present rather than yield, because yield seems to indicate that God is putting a lot of pressure on you and you'll finally give up. Really, the life of faith, you don't need to live that way. Now, God will bring pressure on you if he has to discipline you. But God will take you to the woodshed when you don't realize that you need to go there. When you realize that you might be headed there, instead of just going there and committing yourself to a life of, what, discipline, externally produced, you have the ability to judge yourself instead. You find yourself being tempted. Present. Go to God. Take some initiative. So this word really is about your initiative not yield yourselves to God, it's not well put. Present present yourself unto God. That is, run to Him. Don't wait and finally give up. Don't be your resistant self. Present yourself to God. Say, here I am, God. Look, here I am. I've got claims. My old nature is claiming. My old nature is busy claiming, clamoring for me to yield, to hand over, my members to give up my weapons. I don't want to present these weapons to the old nature and continue sinning and let sin reign in my body. Instead, look, here I am. I'm present my here I am. I'm present myself to you. Look, I'm your servant. I tell that to God, by the way. Now present yourself to God. Here I Lord, here 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 I am. Present yourself unto God as those that are alive from the dead. Now, what does that mean? That means you have to do some reckoning faith. You have to consider by faith the fact of Christ's death for you, the new nature that he's given you, that you can walk in newness of life. You have to engage your faith. You can't just sit by passively, or that traitor will claim your body, and the next thing you know, your weapons are in his hands, the hands of the traitor. Instead, present yourself to God as those that are alive from the dead. That's that faith. There's that faith. You see, we never leave the principle of grace through faith. And your members as weapons of righteousness. Here, Lord, I don't know what kind of weapon you want me to be here. I don't know if I'm a machine gun, if I'm a B-2 bomber, if I'm an artillery weapon. But whatever it is, here it is. Here you go. Here's weapons of righteousness. I want to be I want to be a mean, lean fighting machine. So you got that you have that going for you. Verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Now this is an interesting principle here. Look, look I want to read verse 14, meditate on it. That's all the further we're going to get today, but I want to lay out verse 14 a little bit in detail. For sin shall not have dominion over you, because you are not under the law principle, but under grace. Now, that, if you're not understanding well, will make you sit back and think. Sin won't have dominion over me 
because I'm not under the law. That's an interesting thought. You see, when you place yourself under a law principle, you forget what it is that the law does. The law defines you as a sinner in detail. The law defines you as a sinner in great detail. In fact, the law makes sin abound. You remember, that was the work of the law. You don't place yourself under the law because the law makes sin abound. That's the purpose of the law, to make sin abound. And then where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. But we're beyond that. You see, we don't need sin to abound. And, of course, it's insane. It's literally insane when tempted by sin to turn to something that makes sin abound. So many Christians, of course, it's the enemy's device. So many Christians turn to a law principle to escape sin, and what happens? Sin abounds. And then they even get into the situation where they disengage judgment and start saying, I'm not sinning. Or some, I got saved when I was 19 years old, and I haven't sinned since. Now, I heard a guy in Akron, Ohio, he preaches that on television all the time. I don't know if he's still on the air. But, you know, he's busy smacking people in the forehead, knocking demons and smoking out of them. And he has the audacity to lie to everybody and got right in front of God and everybody else on the airwaves and say he hasn't sinned since he was 19 years old. The liar? That's a sin. But here's what we do. We're tempted by sin. We place ourselves under a law principle, and that creates sin to abound. Sin will not have dominion over us. Now, that, though, that the Scripture says that. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Now, that's just confidence that in time of weakness, you have to have because God said so. And what is that? What is it that I believe that because God? That is faith. That is a faith principle. God says sin shall not have dominion over you. I believe that because God said it. That is a faith principle. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law. You are not under law but under grace. Okay, where sin abounds, I'm tempted to yield my weapons as instrumentalities of sin. Where sin abounded, grace superabounds. Instead, I'll present myself to God, and even though I'm being threatened by a traitor with disarming me and using my weapons against God, I'll show him, I'll present myself to God, and I'll turn into a lean, mean, fighting machine. Now that is part and parcel of what God has done for us. That is the grace of God. God not only has saved us, but he's called us with a holy calling, and he has given us the opportunity in these mortal bodies, despite the fact that we're wretched sinners, this is the great grace of God, he has given us the opportunity to be instrumentalities of righteousness. Well, now that's great grace. That is grace that is greater than all our sin. That is where sin abounded, grace does much more abound. And my friends, all of that is what God has given to us. Well, that's marvelous. That's wonderful. Uh, it doesn't get any better than that but you need to believe it because God's Word says it. Well, we'll continue on with Romans if you'll come back to us. In the meantime, why don't you go to the Lord Jesus Christ? 